Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. For your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we have just read a really heavy passage of scripture together. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us this morning understanding as to exactly what your heart for the church is in relation to wealth and material possessions. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage those of us who maybe lack in material possessions as well through this text as we get a better handle on your perspective of some of the dangers of wealth and riches. So Lord, speak to us through your word and teach us and continue guiding us on the path of what it looks like to be faithful followers of Jesus, to be men and women who are loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength, and also who are effectively loving our neighbors even as ourselves. So Lord, speak to us, teach us, and give us hearts that are pliable and soft in your presence today. And we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. MTV Cribs launched back in 2000. And when they did, they, launched, they, they kind of created a brand new reality TV concept. And at that point, the concept was this. Let's give ordinary people an insider's look into the homes and the lives and the luxuries of the rich and famous. And the show was a huge success and many other spinoffs of similar concepts have happened since then. In fact, you could go on Netflix right now and watch shows like The World's Most Extraordinary Homes or Charlie Luxton's Homes by the Med and get a similar experience. But of course, nowadays through social media, we can not only peek into the lives of the rich and famous, but we can actually follow along in their daily, uh, their daily lives. We can see a lot of their interactions and really see what they're up to on the daily. And so we have the opportunity now to have an insider's look into the lives of maybe our favorite celebrities or politicians or businessmen or women around the globe. And what this does is it gives us a window into that world and all of the trappings that come with it. And with very little nudging, we can begin longing for and dreaming of the life that they live. Desiring to live the way of the rich and powerful is something that people have always struggled with. In fact, some commentators see this as one of the reasons that James writes this scathing warning toward the rich here in James 
chapter 5. What I mean is that it's not likely that there were many super rich and ungodly people filling the pews of these early churches that would have received this letter. And yet, that's exactly who James is writing to here. Non-Christians who were rich and oppressing the poor. So the question is, if these rich non-Christians who were oppressing the poor were not present to hear this teaching, why would James have written directly to them? Well, the answer is this, that James wants his readers to know what God thinks of these people so that they wouldn't fear them or envy them. So that they wouldn't be afraid of the rich who were oppressing them because they would see God's attitude toward that. And also they wouldn't have this desire to try to copy their lifestyle. They would see it for what it actually is. It's sort of like in the Old Testament when you have some of God's prophets and they are pronouncing judgment on some of the surrounding pagan nations. Those were Israel's scriptures. Those were gonna be read to God's people, but they were speaking directly to the pagan nations around them. The point was, again, similar to this, that God wanted his people to know what his heart and his thought was toward those surrounding nations. It's easy for the have-nots to look at those that have a silver spoon in their mouth with envy and to say, boy, I would love to have that. But things aren't always what they seem. With great wealth comes great temptation, and there are very few who can resist it. Now, it should be clear from what's been said already that the issue for these people, the problem for these people that are being addressed in James 5 is not that they were rich. Wealth in and of itself is not sinful. Deuteronomy 8.18 reminds us that you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Then in Proverbs 10.22 we read, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Sometimes God, in his wisdom, blesses his children with great resources so that they can do great good. God made Joseph rich and powerful so that he could deliver a whole nation of people from a severe famine and so he could provide for his own family, which is a large family, which would ultimately turn into the nation of Israel. God made King David rich so that David could establish a kingdom and build the temple. God made Joseph of Arimathea rich so that he could provide a proper burial for the body of our Lord and provide a tomb for his body to be laid in. The problem comes when we value money in the wrong ways and when we use money in the wrong ways. 1 Timothy 6.10 is the clearest scripture on the issue that is really involved with money. It reads, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. For these people here in James chapter five, it was the love of money, the inordinate desire for money that led them into various sins that were now bringing God's judgment down on them. And so James 
And the spirit of the Old Testament prophets unloads this warning of God's future judgment on this group. He says in verse one that they need to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is really strange graphic language. Really strong graphic language, I should say. Um, the, the word picture here, the idea is of a mother receiving the news of the unexpected death of a child and the sort of shrieking terror and weeping and howling that would come in a moment like that. And James is saying for these ungodly rich, this should be their reaction because of the judgment that is to come. What are the sins of these rich people that are going to bring about God's judgment? Well, there are three specific ones that are listed for us in the text. The first that we see is the issue of hoarding in verses 2 and 3. He says in verse 2, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The rich here at this time were stockpiling their wealth in the form of food. That's what he's alluding to when he says your riches have rotted. So it was stockpiling riches in the form of food, clothing, and precious materials, silver and gold. And these verses here speak of extreme waste. The food is spoiled. The clothing is just sitting there in closets and moths are now eating it and it's no longer going to be useful. Even the precious metals that they owned were just sitting there corroding and rusting away. They weren't even being used. And the issue here was compounded by the fact that they laid up these treasures in the last days. The term their last days refers to the time between Christ's first coming and the second coming of Christ. We are living in the last days in that sense, even now. And James is pointing out that rather than living for eternity, living in light of Christ's return, they were living for the here and the now. Now, the issue of hoarding can be rooted in numerous things. Um, for people who had lived through the Great Depression or people who have lived through the privations of war, oftentimes uh, a practice of hoarding is rooted in a fear of being without. They've gone through extreme poverty. They've known what it was like to not be able to even meet their own needs. And so they have a tendency to hoard and to stockpile things out of fear. But for the rich and for the people that James is blasting here in James chapter 5, hoarding is usually rooted in a desire to flex their wealth, a desire to sort of show off, a desire to demonstrate these status symbols of things that they have. And so they just accumulate more and more of it as a way of proving their worth. In the United States, you and I are on one hand, fortunate enough to live in the wealthiest nation on planet Earth. Uh, we live in the land of plenty, the land of abundance, and our hoarding habits prove that this is true. And this is not just the problem of the uber-wealthy um, in our country. This is an issue that, that uh, the upper middle class and even the middle class deal with too. 
1950, the average new home that was built in the United States was a whopping 983 square feet. Not even 1,000 square feet. That was new construction. Anybody want to guess what the average new home being built today in the United States is in square footage? I couldn't even hear that. Say it again. 28? 25. 25 is closer. It's 2386. In California, probably larger though. Think about that though. 2,386 square feet. That is two and a half times the size of the homes on average that were being constructed 70 years ago. And here's the crazy thing about it. Even though we have two and a half times the living space, most of us have smaller families, we have no problem filling that space up. We just stuff these homes in garages and in a lot of parts of the country, basements full and full of stuff. But that's still not good enough. HuffPost ran an article last year titled, America has more self-storage facilities than McDonald's. I love the first line of the article. It reads this, this way. It says, <laughs> this is so great. Turns out the only thing Americans may love more than Big Macs is hoarding. And we love our Big Macs. But they're joking. They're like, it turns out we love something more than that. And it's hoarding our stuff. I read that there is 21 cubic feet of storage space available in this country for every American household. That's incredible. It's like we have these larger homes than ever. We have garages. We have a lot of a storage on our property. And then so many Americans still go out to get more storage space so that we can put our things away. Now, hoarding is particularly sinful because hoarding is so wasteful. Rather than using our goods for the benefit of others or even for the benefit of ourselves and our own families, we allow our goods to simply sit and waste away. How many Americans have closets full of shoes and clothing that are not being used? They've never been worn. We say, I might need that someday. I should hold on to this. This might come back in style in 20 years. And we just have all of these uh, just closets full of things that we're not wearing. How many Americans have extra cars that never get driven? Or RVs or boats sitting on their property that are just covered for year after year after year. They never even take them out. All of this is waste. These things could be useful to somebody else. This is poor stewardship of the resources that God has given to us. And according to verse three, we're gonna be held accountable for it. He says, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now that's an intense verse. And it's definitely speaking of that final judgment where the ungodly are going to experience God's judgment. The good news for any of us here this morning that are Christians is that because we're in Christ, if you struggle with this sin, this sin, just like all of your sin, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And that means that you and I don't have to live in fear of the great white throne judgment, of being judged and separated from God's goodness for all of eternity. So that's great news. But we shouldn't conclude from that, that our sins are not still being scrutinized by the Lord and that we're not still gonna suffer loss before the Lord because the scriptures teach us that we will. That all of our works, even as Christians, are going to be evaluated by our Father in heaven. 
And we will either be rewarded for our good deeds or suffer loss for our sins in eternity. How tragic for those of us who name the name of Christ to store up treasures for ourselves in the last days. Family, listen, remember, we are pilgrims. The scriptures call us sojourners. We're just traveling through this land. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. This is just travel. We should travel light. Remember, godliness with contentment is great gain. So the first sin of these wealthy, ungodly people in James 5 was hoarding. The second sin that he points out is in verse 5, and it's extravagance. Here's what he writes. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So the second issue here is one of extravagance. He's pointing out that these wealthy people were living in extreme luxury and extreme comfort, and they were unconcerned with anybody but themselves. Now, I understand that the word luxury is, in some regards, a relative term. Who in this room does not live in luxury in comparison to people in the third world who lack clothing and shoes, who don't eat every single day, who live in a mud hut or some other sort of structure. All of us in comparison to that are living in luxury. So I understand that it's a relative term. Knowing this, I don't pretend to have the ability to articulate when each and every one of us has crossed the line by living with too much luxury. We each need the Holy Spirit's help in discerning how much is enough in our own lives. And I would commend to all of us that it would be a great practice to include other godly people into your life and into discussions about your finances and your giving habits and all of that. It's funny because personal finances is one of the most private things even in the church. We don't want anybody to know how much we make, what we spend our money on, but Money is one of the greatest risks for us spiritually. So it would be utter foolishness to live with complete privacy when it comes to our resources. There's something very liberating and helpful about opening ourselves up to not everybody in the church, but a trusted friend or two who can look at your family and your life and provide guidance and encouragement for you in this area. With this being said, here are a few thoughts that I hope you'll find helpful in regards to extravagance. Both of the words here in verse 5, the one translated luxury and the one translated self-indulgence, in the original language are focused on self. So what we gather from that is instead of using their resources for the good of other people, instead of using their resources for kingdom purposes, They were using all of their resources for self. That's what what the point of their money was. More for me, more for me, more for me. The words generosity, charity, philanthropy, these were not in their vocabulary. The second thing to point out is that both of these Greek words refer to pursuing pleasure. The first Greek word there, the one that's translated luxury, 
is used elsewhere in connection with revelry. Revelry is like living in wild parties and drunkenness. It's somebody who is spending their money in that kind of a lifestyle in the pursuit of pleasure. The best biblical example of this would be the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Remember, this young man comes to his father and he demands his portion of the inheritance. And when his dad acquiesces and gives it to him, this young man takes that money, he runs off into a far country, he's free from the rules and restraints of his dad. And he goes out and we read this in Luke 15, 13, that he squandered his property in reckless living. That's the idea. It's this life of revelry. You're using your money just in reckless living. Now, the second word, the one that was translated here, self-indulgence in the ESV, relates to living for pleasure's sake. So in other words, what these people are doing is they are spending all of their resources, and they had tons of them, but they are spending all of their resources in an attempt to bring themselves pleasure, to gratify their own flesh, to satisfy their appetites and their, desire, their desires. Tragically, the best biblical example of this is the otherwise, incredibly wise, King Solomon. King Solomon is regarded as the wisest man in the world, and yet even he went through a season of his life where he recklessly pursued pleasure for all practical purposes, turning his back on the Lord and being headlong in pursuit of pleasure. And I would say to all of us, if it could happen to King Solomon, it could happen to you. King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter two describes his lifestyle of partying, drinking, undertaking massive building projects of stockpiling possessions and exotic treasures and sleeping with many different women. And it's no exaggeration than when he writes in Ecclesiastes 2.10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Now King Solomon, as a monarch in the ancient world, had unlimited power and he had unlimited resources. In Solomon's day, gold was like nothing. Silver was like Nothing. He was so unbelievably wealthy. So unlimited power, unlimited money in an unlimited pursuit of pleasure. Solomon plumbed the depths of the pleasure well as deep as you possibly could. And he was able to say more truly than any of us ever will that he has been there, done that, and bought the t-shirt. And when it was all said and done, Solomon, after this pursuit of pleasure, concluded it was all vanity. It was all meaningless. It did not deliver what he was looking for. It goes without saying that this sort of use of your resources, the kind of use that is all about you, getting that next thing, finding pleasure is a sinful use of wealth. The ungodly rich here in James's day were living in the lap of luxury with no regard to the sufferings and the miseries of people around them. They were using all of their money on themselves, foolishly buying bigger, better, and more, thinking that that was going to satisfy them. For the person who lives this way, what this reveals is a really, really bad heart condition. 
This reveals a heart that is far from God because this person has clearly not understood that true satisfaction, true pleasure are found in him. David was able to say in Psalm 1611 that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The follower of Jesus is throughout their life in greater and greater degrees able to agree with that assessment that you know what, true joy, true pleasure is found in him. Unless you're living at or below the poverty line, a good rule of thumb was given by Sam Alberry. He said this, we should never be living as well as we could be. Let me say that again. We should never be living as well as we could be. What does he mean by that? He means that all of us should be using a percentage of our resources to serve purposes outside of ourselves. We should be giving money, according to the New Testament, to support the work of ministry in our local church. We should be using our money and our resources to help people who are in need, people who are less fortunate than us. And so we should be able to look as Christians at our lives and say, you know what? If I kept all of my resources for me, sure, I could live better, so to speak. I could have a higher standard of living. We could have nicer this or bigger that or better this. But because of Christ, that's not the way I'm going to live. That's not how I'm going to choose to live. None of us should be living as well as we could be. If you are, if ev with every raise you push yourself fully to that next limit and, not, and, and don't become more and more generous with your resources, this is a, te excuse me, a telltale sign that we are in the pursuit of extravagance and maybe not godliness. Think about the Lord Jesus himself. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we read this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus living in the glories and the riches of heaven for all of eternity, willingly became poor at the incarnation when he became man, not for his own good. He did that for our sake so that through that decision, you and I might become eternally rich because through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our greatest issue, sin, was dealt with so that our sin could be removed and by faith we could be in Christ and become children of God and become co heirs of all that is Christ, so that for all of eternity, if you're in Christ, you will live in the lap of luxury in God's presence. This is what our Savior and our Lord and our God has done for us. Should it not mark us that we become a people like that? That we, instead of looking out for ourselves with all of our resources, become the type of people who are saying, what if, like Christ, I leveraged what God has given me for the good of other people around me. We need to follow in the footsteps of Christ. The third issue and final issue or sin in this text, we read about in verses four and six, and it's the sin of injustice. 
Look at verse four again. James writes, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And then drop down to verse six. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The final issue was the most egregious. Not only were the ungodly rich not helping the poor, they were in fact oppressing the poor. They were hurting the poor. These day laborers who were mowing their fields and harvesting their crops were being left unpaid. They were being hung out to dry. This was an unspeakable evil. In fact, God condemns this in several places in the Old Testament. One example is Leviticus 19.13. God says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. See, the problem is, is that the poor, these day laborers, literally lived day to day. That, that paycheck from that day's work was food for their family, was clothing, was shelter. For the rich to withhold their payments was to leave these people in peril. And here's the really sad thing about it, is that for the rich person to pay that day laborer their wage, it would have really had no impact on that rich person's life. But the impact on the poor person, again, is life and death. They depended on these resources and God is angry about this sort of injustice. To make matters worse, in the event that the poor would cry out to these rich oppressors, instead of going, you know what, you're right, I'm exploiting you, let's make things right, what the rich would do instead is they would drag them into court and they would have them condemned and oftentimes even executed according to verse six. How horrendous is that? Oh, you wanna speak out? Okay, I can take care of you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna set an example for the rest of my employees with you. You're gonna be thrown into prison or again, perhaps taken out and executed. Now, even in a place like the United States, the freest and most equitable nation in the history of the world, the rich and powerful can still take advantage of the system. The elite can pay for the best lawyers, and they can bully and intimidate the poor outside of court, and they can oftentimes manipulate and sway the verdict inside the court. So how much more true is this of the ancient world, where literally the poor had almost no rights? What they were facing here was systemic oppression, they were helpless. There was nothing that they could do. In verse six, we're reminded that the poor man does not resist you. He does not resist the rich. It's easy to see that these rich people were not using their wealth or their power for the good of other people. In fact, they were using it for the opposite, to hurt other people. Now I know, especially on this point, it's easy for a lot of us to go, oh, I'm not in that place. I'm not nearly that powerful or wealthy, and I'm not oppressing people. But it's possible for some of us to still practice these sinful patterns. Many of us in this room find ourselves in positions of power and authority in the lives of others. Even in an economic standpoint, some of you here are business owners. Some of you are in positions of management. Um, and in these sorts of positions, you do have a, a, a level of power and authority in the lives of of other people. And we, if we're not careful, can fail to take care of those underneath us. 
We can drag our feet on getting an issue with their paycheck resolved. Oh, we'll get around to it. Not realizing these people need that money. They depend on that money. And we can request that an employee work overtime for us and not compensate them for it. Make them feel bad about it. Perhaps even threaten them. Well, there's other people who would do this work. There's other people who would be glad that they have a job like this and bully people into submission instead of giving them their due. We can not get them a reimbursement check on something that they're due. There's so many different ways that this plays out in the workplace. But the sinful issue here is actually more accessible to us than we might think. How are these rich people getting their wealth? They were amassing their wealth through fraud. They were becoming wealthy through unjust means. They were going about it in the wrong ways. And there are still many sinful ways to accumulate, accumulate wealth or to get money for yourself that are available to all of us. Things like cheating on your taxes, overcharging your clients, lying about the hours that you worked so that you can get a bigger paycheck, filing false insurance claims, stating that you bought that used car or dirt bike or boat for way less than you actually bought it for so that you don't have to pay as much in taxes. The examples abound. And the point here is that these people were becoming wealthy through unjust means. That's a temptation that all of us have to face and that God is calling all of us to resist. We are called to be people who are pursuing money and resources justly and righteously. God is a God of justice. God will not be mocked. And you and I will reap what we sow. Those who were coming under James' scathing warning were those who earned their wealth through fraud. In summary this morning, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Whether you have lots of money or relatively little, God intends for you to use your resources for his glory and for the good of others around you. Let me try as we close to provide a little bit of application for different groups among us. First, there's a direct application for the ungodly rich. Probably most of us are going, cool, not me, tune out. So application for the ungodly rich or those who emulate the same sins as them just on a micro scale. Here would be the application. You need to know this morning that God sees you. He knows what you're doing. And God will hold you accountable for these things. So the right response to the teaching, if we have to check the guilty box in some of these areas, is to not walk out of church and ignore the teaching. It is to repent and change direction. Remember when Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector, met Jesus. He meets Jesus, and upon that encounter, here's his response in Luke 19.8. He says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here is a man because of Christ who said, you know what? I am going to repent. I'm going to start now doing the right things with my resources. What about application for the vulnerable in our midst this morning? Or perhaps even those who are oppressed? The poor oppressed, 
the vulnerable, those who are living at the poverty line, maybe below the poverty line. The application would be this. God sees you too. And God's heart is toward you. And God will vindicate you. This is one of the great hopes of the gospel. At the resurrection, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to make right every wrong in the world right now. We live in a world that that has systemic oppression. We live in a world and in systems sometimes where you can't do anything to right the wrongs that are happening around you. God is not oblivious to this. God is not blind to this. The cries of the harvesters, harvesters are making their way to the ears of the Lord and at the resurrection, there will come a great reversal. This is why Jesus could teach in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So if you find yourself in that place this morning, with it, with despite all of your efforts, you just can't seem to get ahead, you can't make ends meet, God sees you and God is with you and God promises to sustain you and he's calling you to be patient in your suffering until his return. In fact, we're gonna see that next week in our sermon continuing in chapter five. Finally, as a word of application for us as a church family, I already mentioned this earlier, but I really do wanna encourage all of us to prayerfully consider what it might look like to become more transparent with our finances. Again, I'm not saying let's, let's all talk about all of our money to everybody, but I am suggesting that you and I have, because of our hearts, uh, we have a great tendency to justify ourselves, explain away our shortcomings and our sins, deny that they're even there. And because we know that wealth and money is such a, a strong temptation toward evil, it would, it would be wise for us to prayerfully consider what it might look like to start including one or two trusted people into your family, into your life to think about your resources, to think about your giving patterns, to think about major expenditures or expenses and things that you're gonna do with your resources, not so that they can tell you what to do with your money, but so that you can get other perspective. The scriptures teach us that in a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom and safety. And if we believe that to be true, why would we keep the possibility of getting wisdom and safety out of such an important aspect of our Christian life? James wrote this section because God wants the poor to see that it is the rich who ought to be pitied and the poor who ought to be envied. And we need this reminder too. It's easy for all of us, I'm just as guilty as the next person, to look at those who have it all with a little bit of envy in your heart and think to yourself, wouldn't it be nice to live like that? Not so fast. Jesus said how hard it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. With great wealth comes great temptation. How many of the rich and famous around us are doing nothing more than fattening themselves now for a day of slaughter? So I would commend to you that it's better to say with the psalmist, I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. 
Let's pray together. God, it's amazing to think about how the application of this sermon would strike people living in the third world, living, living in a position of poverty, living in a position of possibly oppression, and how all of the application for somebody like that would be rooted on not what they have here and now, but rooted in the reality that you love them, that you will be with them, and that you will vindicate them. But Lord, that's not us for the most part. We're on the opposite end of the spectrum. And although none of us, or probably very few of us, would be considered in this culture extremely wealthy, that doesn't mean that we still don't have reckoning to do with a text like this. And Lord, I just pray that you would, Lord, allow each of us to experience your grace, your guidance, your direction on what it looks like for us in this season of our lives to resist the impulses toward hoarding, to resist the impulses toward extravagance, to resist the temptations to accumulate more resources in any unjust ways, trying to take matters into our own hands. But instead, Lord, you would help all of us in the power of the Holy Spirit to sit before you and say, Lord, what would it look like to live a life that is even more oriented toward the reality of your kingdom, that is even more oriented to seeking to serve with my life and my resources those around me in greater and greater ways. Lord, we don't do this to curry your favor. We don't do this so that we can earn a righteousness before you. We know that the only righteousness any of us have is ours by virtue of our faith in Christ. It's his righteousness that becomes ours. But Lord, all of us that are Christians this morning desire to grow in these areas because we love you, because we've received your grace and your goodness, because we've been the recipients of such great generosity, the generosity of Christ himself, that it moves our hearts to say, how can we do that too? So Lord, lead us into greater and greater freedom from the temptations of money. Lead us into greater and greater degrees of generosity and other-centeredness with our resources. And we pray that as you do that, you would use us as a church family to help meet needs around us in this city and in this community and through our generosity to have opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with those that we serve. So Lord, we invite you to do this work in our hearts. Lord, lastly, I pray for any in our congregation who truly are in a place of need. Perhaps they live at the poverty level. Perhaps they live below it. Lord, I pray that they would not be afraid or timid to approach others in the body, to talk to us as a church family about their needs, and that we as brothers and sisters in Christ would certainly not judge them. We would love them and we would seek to be an answer to some of their problems, that we would seek to bless them and support them and help them in their time of need. So Lord, we commit all of these things to you now. We worship you for your grace and your kindness and your blessing. Of course, the gift of salvation, but the many other gifts that we have beyond that.
We worship you. We praise you. We thank you. You are such a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, along those lines of praising and worshiping him because he is worthy and he is a good, good God, why don't we stand to our feet and we're gonna conclude with a song of praise. So God bless you. Let's stand and worship.